diagnose your own life, would you say that uh, the main problem is that you need to stop doing too many bad things or that you need to start doing more good things? See the difference? Would you say that you do too many bad things or that you don't do enough good things? Or if we put it in relationship with God, do you imagine God saying to you more often, stop, 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 or don't, don't, don't? Or is he saying, go, go, go? Is he like the fuel in your tank? see your brakes. I would guess, knowing uh, most of you somewhat well, that um, we need to think about God more as that fuel, that we need to understand rightly that God is actually encouraging us to a certain moral resolve. And that's what our psalm is, is uh, epitomizing, Psalm 101, that we're going to get to look at. It is a psalm that really makes this, this declaration of what he's going to do, what he's going to be like, certain moral tenets that he's going to try to uphold. And he seems to assume that, that God wants him to do that and that this could actually be part of the good news, part of singing the steadfast love of the Lord. But I fear, I know in my own heart, and I fear in in most of ours, that just understanding how we can say this psalm with any meaning or any confidence is going to take some work. So let's, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. God, we do thank you for this day, this day that you have set apart so that we may come and rest from all of our other works that we would worship you. And so we praise you that we've been able to do that uh, thus far, and we ask that you would speak to us now by, by your word, that your spirit would be mighty, Lord. Uh, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us blind, you have not left us as orphans, uh, but that you give us uh, your church and you give us your word uh, to speak to us. So we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 101, not particularly uh, well-known, but I think it's an important one, especially for uh, us and our our congregation. And so, if we're to look at it honestly at first, and if you, once you heard it read, or if you got to read it uh, while you're sitting there waiting for the service to start, I think the first, your first reaction should be, you should be terrified. I mean, you you should realize you have no chance in actually saying this, and knowing what you're talking about, or saying this with any uh, actual integrity, because he makes claims like, I will ponder the way that is blameless, and I will walk with integrity of heart. I will not put before my eyes anything that is worthless. How long are you going to make it until after this service? How long will you make it until this is true of you, do you think? Perverse heart shall be far from me. I'll know nothing of evil. If you're honest with yourself, you should be terrified. And Christianity is never meant to lower our standards. God doesn't just get nicer in the New Testament. He doesn't just chill out uh, with, with his demands for holiness and morality. So it can't be our response to say, okay, that's 
just a psalmist. And we can read it, but not really mean it that seriously. No, that's not what we're doing. But we do have to realize first that we should be terrified. And this is the classic uh, Protestant response to the moral law, that we come to it and we realize we have no chance it condemns us. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you think you're close, you Pharisees, because you haven't murdered or committed adultery yet, and you guys are not even close. You have anger in your heart. You have lust in your heart. You don't realize how holy God is. But there is hope. That's our starting point. We are terrified, but when we realize, really, what we just walked through, we can actually start saying this psalm. Meaning, what we just got to walk through are core steps of the gospel in our service. It's very helpful for me, just giving this sermon, to give it now, after we've just all confessed together, we are sinners, we struggle with sin, That doesn't surprise God. That shouldn't surprise us. But there is hope. Christ raises us because he has been raised from the dead. And Christ is actually sanctifying us. And so after being terrified, just so that we can end up coming back to this psalm rightly, after we we are terrified, we can then stand in Christ and say, okay, he is enabling me to do this. If I am declared not guilty in justification, sanctification is me working that out, that God is actually working in my heart to realize it's true and to walk in a new life. And so we can start to actually say Psalm 101 with a bit more meaning, hopefully, that we're not called to this perfect standard of the law, and if we don't meet it, we are eternally condemned. We no longer approach it in that way. But we come knowing that God is working in us to be more and more made into the image of Christ. He sees us. He sees Jesus above us through faith. If you are a Christian, this is who you are. And we are being made more and more into that truth. And so the what we are being made more and more into focusing on Psalm 101, is a type of single-minded purity or or single-minded integrity, but that's kind of redundant. Where we are called, I think the the psalmist is very focused. And that's what we're going to land on when we come to Psalm 101. But it's very important that we realize how we come to understand the law or come to understand this moral resolve. So Psalm 101 really starts with God. He makes it very clear. His first uh, declaration, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. That steadfast love and justice, those don't often seem to go together for us, but steadfast love in the Old Testament, when it's that word hesed, that's his like loyalty to the covenant. That's his promise to Israel to say, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the psalmist is saying, I'm going to sing about that. That's steadfast love. That's faithfulness. And he's going to sing about his justice. We're going to talk later more about justice, about um, loving what God loves and hating what God hates because there are things worth hating. But 
it's important that we, we don't just read it as a sort of sappy type of love when it says steadfast love. It's covenantal. It's God in relationship with his community. This is what he gets to sing about. So that's his first resolution. But the rest are, are more, um, you could say, horizontal-based. They're more morally-based. If the first is uh, vertical, having to do with God, the rest are these moral resolutions. I've mentioned a few already. Ponder, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I will walk with integrity of heart. I will not set before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I will destroy the person who slanders. You get the sense that he's, he's confident for some reason, and he's saying over and over, I will do this. And I think just that stance is hard for a lot of us to do. Because, especially if you've been in the church for a while, you want to throw out a lot of qualifications of why we shouldn't really say that. And so, I want to make sure that, uh, again, that we're clear in what he means. This is not uh, some sort of self-righteous, I'm going to be better than everyone else, and I'm going to destroy those I am better than, because I walk with integrity. This is what my life will be. It's not what... David was, was saying, and that's not what Israel was called to be. It's not a type of self-righteousness. All right? Um, it's also noticed that um, for the Christian, it's not just saying, hey, God lives in me. In the New Covenant, we, we're, we talk a lot about God lives in me, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a lot of great things. But I feel like when we talk about the fact that God lives in us, it's, it's treated very lightly. It's not, it's not given the, the sort of due uh, profundity that it's meant to mean, and we're going to talk about that in a second, the real promise of the new covenant. But notice also what he doesn't do or he doesn't say. He's not talking about he's going to wait until his feelings catch up to what he knows is right. He's not saying I'm going to be authentic to And so if it's not a pharisaical self-righteousness and it's not a waiting to be fully authentic, if he even had that category back then, uh, what exactly is he saying and how can we say this today in Christ? Well, a couple of amazing things that Paul says as part of the promise of the new covenant. He describes himself couple places as being, he has, had, he has died in Christ, and he is now, he doesn't even live, it's Christ who lives in him. This is Galatians 2. In Colossians 3, he's writing to a church, and he's saying, if you have died in Christ, and if you have been raised, seek the things that are above, not the things that are below. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. Think about what he's saying there. He's speaking to a church, Colossae, that's Colossians 3. He's he's speaking to a church that's Christian, struggling with sin, and he gives them this moral exhortation, this moral foundation of why they should fight sin. And he says, you, struggling Christian, Your life is hidden with Christ 
in God. That's how we should say this psalm. That taking our eyes off of ourselves, taking our eyes off of a fear of condemnation when we don't live up to these declarations, taking off uh, uh, the focus of we wonder if we're really able to trust ourselves. It's like that's, that's not in his radar right now. Paul is able to say, I am a new person. It's what a lot of, a lot of Christians toss around the term being born again from John 3. And so we actually start to realize that a Christ, part of meaning a Christian is not only being justified, but is being made new. That your heart is circumcised. He says you are, you, your hearts have been circumcised and cleansed. That First Peter is, is the purified. And so we actually should be able to say things like Psalm 101. We should actually be able to say these, these sort of moral confidences because this is who you are now, Christian. You are a new creation. At your core identity, you're not someone who lives under the, the dominion of sin. You are someone who lives under the dominion of the Spirit. And you can say that the world, the flesh, and the devil are not going to change that. And it's not that you're saying these, these resolutions and, because you know you're always going to fulfill that. No, that's not the point anymore. You're saying, I stand now in Christ. He covers my past, present, and future sin. And as, as Hebrews 12 puts it so well, it says, let us lay aside every weight of sin that clings so closely and let us run with the endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the picture of the Christian. And that's how I think we're ever going to be able to, to know who we are in Christ because of the grace of the gospel but also know that part of that means saying things like Psalm 101. I will walk with integrity of heart because this is now who I am. You're not doing it smugly. You're not doing it self-righteously. But you are doing it because God is making you new. I wanted just to, to make sure we hit that. And we can talk more during our, our brief sermon discussion because it is important, but God is making us new so that we can will one thing, if you will, so that we can uh, have a sort of single-minded devotion of purity. And that's also a way to summarize the Beatitudes, the famous uh, statements that Jesus gives to begin the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why are they poor in spirit? Why will they be comforted? Because they're desperate. They have nowhere else to turn. Who else is is blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're, they know that only their comfort will only come in Christ, in God. They're meek. They're hungry and thirst for righteousness, and they shall be satisfied. And in verse 7, blessed are the pure in heart. And so, that's, that's, um, that's the overall tenor, I think, of the psalm, is this moral declaration of, of who God is making into, and who God is making you into, rather than being uh, double-minded, split with your, your passions and your, your interests all over the place, 
being deceived by who you are. There is a single-mindedness, purity of heart. And then I want to look at some more details about what this means because uh, having resolved for this, he gives us uh, some great images of what sorts of habits we ought to be inculcating. And so some of the habits are he's, he's clearly not interested in giving evil really the time of day. Uh, he, you think maybe of, of later in Paul, Paul says things like flee sexual immorality. He, he just doesn't have time for it. He's not going to put anything before his eyes that is worthless. He's not going to know anything of evil. He's going to walk. And you think of the image of walking is, is more his, his way of life. All the things that he's doing, he's going to walk in integrity of heart. He's going to ponder the way that is blameless. And if we stop for a second, I mean, how, how true is that of us? Do we take time to build certain habits that will form our, our heart and our mind? And it is so hard today in today's culture, I think. I mean, thinking about what is being put before our eyes, we are bombarded with all sorts of images, and we have to go out of our way to avoid them. Whether it's violence or sex or, or all sorts of things, that would be against this psalm. I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm just an old, crotchety, backwards kind of guy, but the calling for, for holiness to actually walk in this way seems so incredibly hard. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to realize and remember that just because something becomes the norm, the cultural norm, doesn't justify it. The early church, everyone went to the Colosseum for the, the gladiator fights, but a lot of Christians didn't. It's not a good enough reason, right? I mean, this it, it became especially true when we had kids, and if we would put on a show, and, and like they couldn't watch a G-rated thing without... I remember, for some reason, a Fruit of the Loom commercial with a, with a grown man just in whitey tighties, just dancing. And, and they're like, what, what is this? What's going on? It's like, I don't know. Can we skip it somehow? It's like, it, it's inescapable, it feels like. It's inescapable. For some reason, the tendency to abuse one another uh, for selfish gain has become so normal that it makes this psalm hard to follow. But we need to realize what we walk into, what we uh, are fighting against. Some of the other habits, if you notice, is he's going to cling. Where's that word cling? That's such a good word. I will cling. I don't think I made it up. Perverse heart shall be far from... Oh, there it is. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me, and then he's getting to the things that he's fighting against, a perverse heart. He will know nothing of evil, not slander, not pride, or arrogance. He's not going to endure. Now, I know you, you're going to have questions, and you're, you're wondering what this could look like more, but give this a chance for a second, because we do need to realize this sort of calling. Uh, it's becoming hip in some circles, especially uh, Christian circles, to talk about the liturgies of our life. 
and realizing that everyone has a liturgy and, it, and there are secular liturgies, meaning there are ways that we are being formed. When we go to the shopping mall, it's a very easy one to see that how we are formed in a certain way, that, that people have thought about what is the best way to get people to think that if they buy more, they're going to be happier or they're going to be more beautiful. That's a sort of liturgy that they are forming in the, the customers, whether we know it or not. What type of liturgy do we walk through in the rest of our lives? We have a liturgy here that we hope is walking us through the gospel to take on the habits of the gospel. And I have to say, being around this spirituality for, for several years now, one way that I see it is I naturally adore God when I start praying. I don't have to think, all right, focus on God first. That's the A, adoration, and then confess. It's become more natural to me, and I think that's really healthy. Hopefully that's happening to you guys as we walk through these habits to form us. There's all sorts of ways you can think about in our culture how we are being formed, how we there are competing liturgies. Even though there are gobs of studies that we know, if we're just thinking about the consumer or the materialistic liturgy, we all know that if you buy more, it's not going to make you happier, and societies that have more aren't happier. So that doesn't matter. We still have these certain liturgies. And, and I'm not trying to pick on that specific sin, uh, but it's one that we can see this image of how, how certain habits are made into our character. What is that for you? What do you, what do you assume and that you buy into that your week is going to look like this no matter what, or that your approach to certain things is going to look a certain way no matter what. That's probably some type of liturgy that you didn't realize you had. That automatically has a value. That is saying if you do this, you are going to get happier or get more prestige or whatever it may be. But here he's being very deliberate in walking according to the ways of the Lord. He's not going to endure those who practice deceit or those who utter lies. He's going to destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers. Uh, we don't have time to go in it, but some of that stuff we need to understand in the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. We fight now with weapons of not of flesh and blood. We fight with spiritual weapons. But the call to holiness, if anything, is more severe and more serious. But I want to ask... Why is saying a psalm like this or, or actually acting in this way, why is it so hard for us? And I think the first one, knowing especially in my own life, the first one is that I have gotten so used to trying to fit in with the world. And it has become so much a part of my Christian life. I have rationalized it so much as my witness that... I'm, I'm actually trying to become more like the world when I realize it. That we are so used to a Christian should be comfortable in the world and should look pretty much the same, except for an hour and a half on Sunday, maybe. But that is so divorced from Scripture and so divorced from the picture that we have of the church throughout the ages that we shouldn't assume it's going to be easy to go with the flow. 
we shouldn't assume that we're not going to find uh, obstacles all along the way. This is our time of exile, as First Peter put it. And this is not our home. How easy is that for you? To just fit in. And to try to fit in. And, and to rationalize it as, because I'm trying to show that Christians can be normal. And yeah, we, okay, I understand that, and I do that too. But at what cost? What's the point? And we lose the whole purpose behind it. Another way to think of that is really just being naive in how we how we handle our lives, the sort of images, say, that we put before our eyes. We are naive that it won't affect us. We're naive that it won't impact us. And if you're really honest with your heart, can you really say that taking in certain images day in and day out or, or doing something day in and day out, that's not changing your heart? Really? Can you really say that in the presence of God? There's a, 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 helpful, a helpful quote from, from J.C. Ryle, who wrote a famous book on holiness. And, and basically, he just makes the point that uh, we don't, we don't realize how bad sin is. And he makes that point by saying that um, we forget that sin doesn't come, if it first presents itself, sin doesn't come saying, hey, I'm your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. No, sin is subtle. The temptation comes subtly. That sin, as he says, comes to us like Judas with a kiss, betrayed with a kiss, or it comes like Joab with an outstretched hand and flattering words. Sin really seems sin at its first beginnings. Isn't that the, the first step when it starts to be normal? And, and I don't know another antidote really than trying to get God's perspective on it as much as we can. What is what is God seeing? What is Jesus seeing, having died and been raised and ascended now at the right hand of God, that he is king? What does he see now? We know what we see. There are cultural norms that we see that we take for granted. But what does he see? Would he call this sin a lot worse than we realize? Because he probably would. We probably don't see sin as badly as it really is. We don't want to destroy it. But as I uh, get to counsel a lot of people, if we're talking in this way, it's always two sides. It's not just that side that we need to see how bad sin is. We need to see how much Jesus should capture our hearts. How good is God? And that goes back to the original question. Is God always just saying, stop, stop, don't, don't? Or is there this, this organic, internal attraction that when we see who God is, we want to fight those things and we want to fill it with God. And so to try to take these sorts of habits and to do things like praying and meditate on the Word, putting ourselves in places that's going to show us more and more how good and beautiful Jesus is. That's how we're going to be able to say, I will walk with integrity of heart more and more. 
when integrity itself becomes attractive and not some antiquated, boring word. Pure, I mean, it's hard to find, you know, the biblical words are things like righteousness, holiness, integrity, blamelessness. Those words are like jokes in our culture today, aren't they? I mean, if, you're, if you use those words, you're, or, or if you have friends that use those words, you, they're probably using them in a, in a sarcastic way. So how much work do we have to do to uncover and to rediscover that those words are what God is calling us to, that those are good words? That it's not just, abstinence is not just against something. It's not just the absence of something bad. It's the presence of something much better. Chesterton has a great image. He says, we need to realize that white is a color. That the, that the moral abstinence of the church that he's talking about is not just saying no to a bunch of things. He gives the example of chastity is not just saying no. It's something flaming like Joan of Arc. It's something beautiful because it's pursuing the one good thing that will satisfy, that actually is worthy single-minded devotion and love. That's the Christ that we get to come to and worship. And we can say with all the, the qualifications and understandings of the gospel, knowing that, that we will fail, but knowing that we have no fear of condemnation anymore because of Christ, we can stand and say, God, you're making me new. Hallelujah. I want to see why integrity and purity are what you made me to be. I will walk with integrity of heart. Let's take a moment prepare to walk and come to his table.